picture here. This is the newspaper, August 14th, 1945, um, signaling that the Second World War, specifically in Japan, is over. This is good news, right? Good news for the world. But good news is good news for different people in different ways. This news changed the world overnight. Soldiers in the Pacific, this was good news because the fighting was over. Parents waiting at home, this is good news because their sons would be coming back. Japanese Americans in internment camps, this is good news because their situation had been pretty rough for a while. But this good news maybe hits differently if you're a U.S. military contractor who's making a bunch of money off the war. It hits a little differently if you're a member of the Japanese military. Good news feels different depending on who you are. And in this text that Don read this morning, we're going to see two people. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, is going to meet Mary, the mother of Jesus, and give her some good news. And Mary is going to respond to that good news. And in her response, she's going to talk about different groups of people. So let's start reading in verse 39. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. So we see this, this relationship between Mary and Elizabeth. They're, they're cousins or family members. The, the way the, the Greek words work, we're not quite sure what the relationship was. They're both pregnant. Mary has been told by an angel that she's going to be, give birth to the Messiah and that also Elizabeth is carrying a son in her old age. She goes to visit. And when they see each other, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and she gives this prophetic proclamation. She says, Mary, something amazing has happened to you. You've been given this, this great gift. The Lord, the Messiah, the King is being carried in your womb. Mary, you are blessed. So let's talk about Mary. We are um, Protestants. Right? Protest the Protestant churches began in the 1500s, and they're called Protestants because we protested. We said there's some things going on in the church, the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, that we thought were inappropriate, unacceptable, not in line with our faith. And so the Protestant churches said, let's try to get back to a more pure New Testament understanding of the gospel. And some of the things that we've protested over the years have to do with Mary. There are, there are four major ideas about Mary in the history of the church, and, and just because I like history and I think it's fun, we're going to talk about them a little bit. They're called the Marian dogmas. If you're a Roman Catholic or if you have a Roman Catholic background, you know that a dogma is something that you have to believe in order to be in. And the first dogma is that Mary is the mother of God or the God-bearer. And this is a doctrine that came about at what's called the Council of Ephesus in 431, and 
the Christians in Ephesus were trying to figure out how best to articulate who Jesus was. And they knew that, that Jesus was human and they knew that Jesus was God and they didn't quite know how to put those two things together. And they talked about it and argued about it. And then they, and they decided that what scripture bore out was that Jesus was both fully human and fully God at the same time. And therefore, Mary appropriately could be called the mother of God, the woman who carried God, the divine son in her womb. And this is an idea that most all Christians everywhere agree on. But then there's this second dogma that that Mary is perpetually a virgin, that she, after giving birth to Jesus, remained a virgin her entire life. There's no solid New Testament reason for this, but it's a pretty long-held tradition. The Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, many Protestant churches also believe that this is the case. The third Marian doctrine is called the Immaculate Conception. And and it says that not only was Jesus sinless, but Mary was also sinless. She was conceived without sin and lived a completely sinless life. And then fourthly, the bodily assumption of Mary, it says that Mary either died and then was immediately resurrected and ascended into heaven or that she never died at all and ascended into heaven. Now there's a variety of different historical uh, weights you could put on these ideas, but the important thing about our context as Protestants is is that we said like, you shouldn't have to believe all of those things are true in order to be called a Christian. And so Throughout Protestant history, we've pushed back against a lot of that. We've said, well, that's not, that's not in the Bible. We want to be connected to the scriptures as closely as possible. And so what tends to happen is because of these things, we just kind of go the opposite way, right? We're, we, we take our pendulum and move it all the way to the other end, and we go, you know, Mary, Mary's no big deal. She's not very special. Who cares about Mary? We're Protestants. But here's the thing. When we are thinking about the heroes of the faith, Mary should be at the top of that list. She is an amazing Christian woman who loves God deeply and was incredibly faithful and obedient to her calling, to her own hurt. And she is a role model and an example to us all. And so we need to be careful, especially in this season, as we run up against these ideas, to not throw uh, Mary out with the bathwater, right? So Mary is given this prophetic word by her, uh, by her, about her calling by Elizabeth, and this stirs up in her this prophetic song that she sings. It's called Mary's Song or the Magnificat, maybe your Bible says. And what she speaks about is the good news of the gospel, the good news of the coming King, Jesus. And so what I want to look at this morning is the way that this good news speaks to different people. And I think Mary's song tells us that this good news, it speaks to us in three different ways. It speaks to me, and it changes me. It speaks to them out there and it changes them and it speaks to us and it changes us. So how does the gospel speak to me? 
Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. The beginning of Mary's song is very personal. God has done these things for me, she says. And this is such an important part of the gospel. And I think it's the one that in our tradition, we most often get right in the way we speak anyway, that we, we believe and we teach and we proclaim that God loves you personally, right now, today, every one of you, God loves you. Now, Mary has a special role to play in the story of God, but at the same time, we are all invited into this family through Jesus. And just like Mary, we have an opportunity personally to say yes or no to that. In a few verses before, in in verse 38, the angel is proclaiming that this thing is going to happen. And Mary says, see, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. Mary, Mary agrees to this calling. She's, she's surprised by it. She recognizes her humble condition. See, Mary is, is just a poor young girl living in an insignificant town in Roman-occupied territory. And she could rightly ask the question, what does God have to do with me? What would God want to do for her? I wonder if any of us have ever thought anything like that. When you you are confronted with the truth that God loves you, that God is for you, that God sent his son to die for you and raise from the dead to give you new life, do you ever just think like, why would God do that for me? I'm nobody. I'm not special. Maybe even like there's things that I've done that if God knew about that, he wouldn't have done that for me. Well, God does know about those things and he loves you anyway. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning and you've heard that God loves you, but you you just can't think of how that might be possible. Maybe you've been told by other people that you don't matter, that you're not important, that you're unlovable. Maybe you've lived a life that you're sure that God must find objectionable. Maybe you've heard from Christians that he definitely finds it objectionable. The idea that you would be invited into a relationship with the God of the universe and given status as a loved member of a new family, that just sounds crazy. But this is why the good news of Jesus is good news. This is why Mary is singing, because God showed up in this girl's life when she doesn't deserve it, she hasn't earned it, there is no reason to think she is special. And he picks her and says, I love you, I want you, I have a plan for you. Some of us in here um, love musicals. The rest of us are wrong, just so you know. <laughs> but, but you know, in a musical, there's usually dialogue And that dialogue continues until the point that the characters can't contain their emotions anymore and they break out into song. And this is is what's happening here, is Mary cannot express by words alone how grateful she is for the love of God for her, and she sings. Mary is singing because she is overwhelmed by the goodness of God. And we need to get a hold of this, especially in this season of Advent. 
We need to become people who learn to deeply appreciate and feel the love of God for, for us. Because the thing is, when we really start to bring that into the deepest part of our souls, it changes our lives. And I wonder sometimes if this is why some of us have a hard time singing. You know, I play in the band sometimes, and, and I look out from the stage, and, and don't get me wrong, we, we are a church that sings well, but some of you guys are just like, like the whole time. And I, and you know, maybe there's reasons for that. I don't want to judge you. But one reason might be like, do you really believe the things that you're singing or not singing? Have you really understood that God has come for us to save us, to lift us out of the depths and give us new life? Has that really settled into your heart? Are you moved by the goodness of God towards you, that, that you've been rescued from sin and death, you've been called into a new family and a new community? And if this morning you're, you're feeling like, no, I, my, my faith feels kind of dead, it feels kind of lackluster. Maybe, maybe I've believed these things for a long time, but, but I just don't really feel it anymore. What do you need to do to rekindle that flame? The unfortunate reality is a lot of marriages end halfway through for the same reason. Two people fall madly in love with each other and they're just passionately excited about the other. And over the years... There's routine and kids and financial struggles and work routines, and it just gets kind of boring. And then somebody new that seems more exciting comes along, and there's unfaithfulness. And this can happen in our walk with Jesus, too. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is talking to the church at Ephesus and he says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name, and you've not grown weary. You've been doing all the right things, believing all the right things, but this I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus' words to this church acknowledge their service to him, their faithfulness of doctrine, but he rebukes their lack of love. They aren't captivated by the gospel any longer. And if that's where you find yourself this morning, like, I'm glad you're here. God wants you to be here. The worst thing you could possibly do if you're not feeling like you are experiencing the love of God is to continue to walk away from him. But my encouragement would be to just turn back to Christ. Open your eyes to the goodness and the love that he has for you. Meditate on those ideas and believe them. God comes to reside in Mary, and this completely upends her life. Not only is his, his goodness and his love poured out on her, but she becomes a part of his plan that, unbeknownst to her at the time, is going to get pretty difficult. It won't be long before another prophecy is spoken to Mary by an old man named Simeon, Simeon, after um, Jesus is born, they go to the temple and Simeon blesses them and tells Mary, 
Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And this is, this is a tension that the good news brings to each one of us. Salvation, hope, love, peace, the promise of a glorious future in the kingdom of God, but also heartache, damaged relationships, economic burden. There is a cost to the way of Jesus because of the way of Jesus leads to the cross. Christiana Peterson writes about Mary. She says, when Mary says yes to bearing Christ, she is intruded upon by God, deeply wounded by the Holy Spirit and brought into the deepest poverty by the preposterous words of an angel. She braves the harshness of pregnancy and an arduous trip to Bethlehem. She gives birth far from home and without the company of the women who usually surround her, she endures a terrifying flight to Egypt to escape those who hunt her son. Although she survives, she watches him grow in wisdom, knowing the terrifying truth she has treasured in her heart all these years, that he will soon die on a cross. In other words, Mary's choice to bear God requires a great deal of suffering on her part. And this, while again, Mary's calling is specific to her, this is echoed in all of the lives of every Christian sense. Dietrich Bonhoeffer commenting on this says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of the world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. And thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And you think about that and then you start to go like, well, is this really good news then? Are we sure we're labeling this correctly? That sounds hard. When my oldest daughter was nine years old, she was diagnosed with tachycardia, which means rapid heart rate. And she would be sitting just on the couch and her heart rate would get up to like 180 beats per minute. And that's a problem. And so we had to fix that. And so what the doctor said was that they were going to take her into a room away from us and uh, knock her out and cut a hole in her leg and run a big tube up her veins into her heart with a little like... uh, soldering iron on the end of it, and they were going to burn off the parts of her heart that were broken. That sounds horrifying. But in that moment, do we trust the doctor? Or do we just go like, nope, I'm not doing that. See, Jesus comes to us to diagnose this problem. We have this sin inside of us, and it is killing us. Do we trust him to know how to fix it? Do we give him permission to enter into our very souls and begin burning off all the stuff in our hearts that shouldn't be there? Do we believe that he knows what's best for us, even if it's scary or painful? This is the the good news for us personally. Life, joy, peace, love, a new family, but also pain and trial. Hardship. And Mary sings, she rejoices in this good news for her, 
But then she shifts her perspective outwards. She says the gospel affects them out there. His mercy, verse 50, is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Mary here is speaking about the future like it's already happened. By bringing the Savior into the world, she says, this is what God has done. And she's, she calls out two groups of people here, the proud, powerful, and rich, and the lowly and poor. Mary tells us that the gospel interacts with the people of the world in a way that reverses fortune. This is a prophecy of deliverance and judgment, but it's also the king has come. Things are going to be different now. And this, this is the story of, of Western civilization, right? This, the, the reality is everywhere the gospel goes, everywhere it, it lands and bears fruit, everywhere the way of Jesus is practiced in the world, where hearts are captivated by this, the powerful are brought low and the lowly are exalted. All of the things that we take for granted, human rights, social care for those in need, hospitals, universities, these things that are just givens in our culture, they come from the fact that our faith has spread around the world. Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, in his book, Dominion, writes, the heroes of the Iliad, favored of the gods, golden and predatory, had scorned the weak and downtrodden. The starving deserved no sympathy. Beggars were best rounded up and deported. Pity risked undermining a wise man's self-control. Only fellow citizens of good character who through no fault of their own had fallen on evil days might conceivably merit assistance. What, ta- what Holland argues in his book is that all of the things we take for granted in the Western world, all of the values we hold, equality and liberty, fairness, care for those less fortunate, all of these things come from the explosion of the gospel in the first century. That if you go back to the ancient civilizations that existed for thousands of years, there were no values supporting the poor. There were no foundations for the weak. There there was no just ingrained reality that, you know what, we should give of ourselves to others who have less than us. This all comes from the Christian gospel. And Mary's not just making this up either. She's well-versed as a Jewish woman in the scriptures. And in Psalm 146, we read, happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever, executing justice for the exploited and giving food to the hungry. The Lord frees prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are oppressed. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects resident aliens and helps the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. God has a special care for the weak and the oppressed, for the poor and the needy. And he also has some pretty harsh things to say for people in power. Because power is a gift that we so frequently abuse. Last week, we talked about money. 
We talked about how we abuse money when we keep it for ourselves. And power is exactly the same. People are meant to be, in, by God's grace, conduits of power, not reservoirs of power. This summer, we did a, a four-church uh, summer camp with All of Life and Transform and Doxa. And uh, I went up for one of the evenings and we played a game. We played a trivia game where all four churches played against each other. And when there was one representative from each church up front, I got to be that person. And we all had a balloon. And the way it worked was the person that answered the trivia question right got to pick one of the other teams. And that person's representative had to take just the biggest, fullest lung full of air and blow it into their balloon and then hold it there. And the the goal was the first person whose balloon popped after multiple blows lost. But that's the way that power often works in our world. Somebody has a big lung full of air and they blow it in their balloon and it gets a little bit big. And then they take another blow and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Because the goal of power is to just have more and more and more and more of it. But what happens finally is it explodes and people are hurt. This is not the way Jesus models the use of power. In John 13, we read, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands. Jesus Jesus is the most powerful being in the universe. That he had come from God. That he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with the towel tied around him. Jesus is a conduit of power. He doesn't keep it to himself. He uses it to lift others up. The gospel empowers those that are poor and oppressed, and it pronounces judgment on those who are powerful and use it for their own means. And just like in our conversation about money last week, which was super uncomfortable because we're all Westerners, right? We are people that wield enormous power compared to the rest of the world. And Mary's prophecy, if we are thinking about it clearly, should make us uncomfortable. It should make us ask questions about the power we have as individuals and as a nation and examine whether we are letting that power flow through us to those with less or whether we are hoarding it for ourselves. The gospel calls us to allow God to use us to bring flourishing into the world. Because the gospel is good news that changes the world. But Mary goes on. She says, the gospel is for me. The gospel is for them out there, but it is also for us. In verse 54, She says, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. Mary closes out her song by placing herself in the community of God's people. This good news that has come to her, Elizabeth's praise that she is greatly blessed, isn't just for her alone. She is a representative of the people of God as a whole. My favorite Christmas story is in Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, 
A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male who was going to rule all nations with, a rod, with an iron rod. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. I think if you haven't decorated your Christmas tree yet, this is the theme that you should go with. I, that is fantastic. There's been this long debate throughout church history. Who is the woman? Is it the nation of Israel? Is it the church? Is it Mary? And I think what it's saying, what John in his, his vision is saying is several things at once. Who gives birth to the Messiah, the King? In one sense, it's Mary. But in another sense, it's the people of God. The people of God have this, this trajectory that we read about in the Old Testaments, that they are waiting, they are being selected, they're being cultivated for this very thing. In Genesis 3, we read, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is the very first gospel presentation in the Bible. There is someone coming that is going to fix this problem with sin and death. A little later on to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Your family. I've chosen you for a special job, Abraham. A little later on, he speaks to King David. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. House of David. There's going to be a king from your line. Isaiah prophesies, the Lord will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel, God with us. There are dozens more of these prophecies throughout the Old Testament that are given to the Jewish people. Their nation is specially chosen to bring the Savior into the world. God was working not just through individuals here and there, but through a people to bring about the incarnation of his son. And he's still working through a people today. The good news isn't just for you and me as individuals, although it is. It is for us as a people. In, in a super controversial passage about uh, gender roles, there's this little nugget in Paul in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Yes, Christ loves you and gave himself for you, but you are a part of the people of God. You are a member of the church. Mary's song reflects backwards to the faithfulness of God to his people in the past and anticipates his continued faithfulness to his people in the future. So the outworking of that goodness and grace needs to be experienced in the church. The good news of the gospel can't just be individual changed lives that sort of bump into each other randomly on a Sunday morning. You can grow a single cell in a Petri dish, but what it does inside a body is very different than what it is capable of doing all by itself. 
In a body, a cell's role changes, its mission changes, its identity and its purpose become conformed to the organism that it's a part of. The body is a greater organism than the cell can be on its own. So how does Mary's good news change us as a people? One of my favorite um, authors that talks about this idea of the gospel in the church is a guy named Ray Ortland. He wrote a little book called Gospel. I've, I've given it to many of you. I have a bunch of them right there if you want it. I'm trying to clear out my, my backlog, but it's excellent book. In this book, Ortland talks about the church as being a place where there is the gospel and safety and time. And he says, the church should be a place where there are multiple ex- exposures to the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. That it, the safety of non-accusing sympathy so that they can admit their problems honestly and enough time to rethink their lives at a deep level because people are complex and changing is not easy. He says what the gospel should do among communities of God's people is that we should constantly be reminding each other of this good news. That my job from the platform that the music team's job from the platform, that your job in your gospel communities, in your conversations in front of the coffee, in your everyday life as you text each other should be, hey, remember the gospel. Remember the good news of Jesus. Remember who you are in Christ and what he's done for you. That the gospel should constantly be on our lips. But that also the church should be a place of safety, a place where we can come to one another and be who we really are. So often the church is a place where we put on a mask, right? Because everybody's fine all the time and we we have to hold ourselves out as this perfect example of virtue when reality is we know that we are broken inside. We We are struggling. We are prone to wander, as the song says. And the church should be a place because of the work of the gospel that we can be honest about that. That we can say, you know, I'm really struggling this week. I'm really tempted by these things or I've, I've fallen into sin in this way. Can you pray for me? And that there wouldn't be revulsion to that, but that there would be acceptance and sympathy and care and building one another up. And then time. Time to let people grow. Growing takes a long time, doesn't it? If you've ever had a garden, like you don't just see fruit the next day. And so often we try to treat people like they're going to just be transformed overnight. We bring people into our communities and then we read them a list of the things that they're doing wrong. We can't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus invites us into this beautiful relationship and over time he just slowly grows us and transforms us. Because we're complicated and it's hard to change and it requires the Holy Spirit's work. This is, this is a community of people that has been changed by the work of Jesus where the gospel is set out front and we're given time and safety to pursue it together. And this is the kind of community that is always on my heart when I think about this church. We are not anywhere near perfect in this regard, but this is the goal that I think we should be shooting for, that we should be about. Mary, in singing this song, has been deeply formed her whole life by identifying with her people. Her relationship with God is inseparably connected to her relationship with her people. 
And, and we, we tend to get this wrong sometimes. We tend to see our relationship with God as solely our own. And the church is just a place or an event or some people that we kind of join with and can come in and out of as we see fit. And this is, this is not really through any distinct fault of our own. This is what we've just been marinating in, in our culture for generations. The good news that Mary proclaims is good news for the people of God. The reality is when we are saved by Jesus, when he takes our sin, when he dies the death that we should have died and rises from the grave to give us new life, we are saved into the church. Cyprian, who is the bishop of Carthage in the third century, said, no one can have God for their father who does not have the church for their mother. And I think he's speaking into a different context, but his metaphor is an important correction for some of us. Because we have a tendency to think that the community of God's people is just this voluntary organization that we should just be free to move in and out of as we please. And don't get me wrong, there are valid reasons to come into and out of a church community. But Mary's song reorients us to remember that the gospel is not just for me personally. It's not just for those out in the world, but it is for us as a people. We are connected together by it. Mary's song is a joyful proclamation of God's faithfulness. And it reminds us as she sings it that the good news about Jesus comes to you, comes to me, and it changes me. It changes me personally. Jesus invites me into something new. It goes out into the world and changes the world culturally, seismically, over generations. It transforms culture. And it comes to us as a people and shapes us into something new people of God. Let's do some Q&R. No questions? Hey, cool. Great. Okay. This makes my job so easy. (laughs) We're going to take communion this morning. The communion meal is another reminder of how the gospel changes us as a people. We don't celebrate it privately. We don't go home and do it alone. We celebrate it together. It's a symbol of our unity with Christ and with one another. And so I would just encourage you uh, to come, take the communion elements back to your seat. There's wine or juice for the dictates of your conscience. You're welcome to sit or stand as we worship together. You're welcome to come kneel at the prayer rugs if you'd like. Sometimes changing the posture of your body helps you change the posture of your heart. And take a few moments to consider the way that Mary's song is speaking the good news about Jesus to you this morning. 
How is the Holy Spirit interacting with his word in your heart this morning? You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.